0: What's up guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by our great friends at Alumni Hall. If you're looking for that 2023 Georgia football game day gear, there's no better place to find it than Alumni Hall. So make sure to stop in today inside the Epps Bridge Shopping Center or online at alumnihall.com because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. But All right guys, let's get this thing rolling today. You know the drill. I'm Tyler, and I am finally back in the great state of Georgia. It feels great to be back home. I had a great time. Don't get me wrong. I had a great time up in the Northeast checking out part of the country I haven't really spent that much time in. No, they don't serve oysters with saltines. Found that out, which at first I felt was blasphemous. Like I was completely taken aback because, you know, I'm just the guy from Athens, Georgia. I'm the uncouth southerner. That's how I get them down here, I guess. But upon further review not so bad. No crime was committed. The oysters were actually great, saying saltines. I still think they would have been even better with the saltines, but hey, regardless, they were great. Now, lobster rolls, I mean, don't get me started on lobster rolls, guys. I think I've come to the conclusion. I think that if everyone ate a lobster roll a day, depression would be eradicated from the face of the earth. I truly do believe that, guys. I just, I don't know how you can eat a lobster roll. And not be the happiest person on earth because they are that freaking good. Now, I'm talking about Connecticut-style lobster rolls. Don't even try to feed me that Maine-style stuff with the mayo, cold, whatever is mixed up in that. No, that, that ain't my jam. I'm about the warm, hot butter lobster roll. Give me a half pound of lobster. Roll that junk up in a pound or two of butter. Put it on a Texas toast bun. And we are in business. Seriously. In like 15 years, when I run for president... That's going to be on my platform, state-sponsored lobster rolls. Not cheap, I get it. Obviously, you run into the problem, like, how do you pay for that? But, I mean, when has that ever stopped our government? Whatever the cost, I say it's a small price to pay for universal happiness. But yeah, had a great time up north, but playtime is over. Operation 2023 college football season preview is 100% full go, and there is no turning back. And we have some really exciting stuff in store for you guys this season. I'm really excited about it. We're close to rolling that out. I just need to put a few finishing touches on some things here and there. Iron out a few details. And we will give you all those details here probably in the next couple of days. At least that's my hope. That's the plan. But we've got some really cool stuff coming your way. I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to make time to get it all done. But we're trying to take our coverage up a notch this season and trying to maybe push ourselves a little bit outside of our comfort zone, which is simultaneously crazy exciting and also horribly frightening. But I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I really think you guys are going to enjoy it. So I'll have those details for you guys in the next week or so. But let's go ahead and move on to today's show. And I'm not sure you guys heard, but apparently while I was away, the University of Georgia and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution went to war. So... We kind of have to start the show there today. And look, I'm not an idiot. I know that you all know the background. Alan Judd, AJC investigative reporter, has been on a crusade to save the world from the corrupt and nefarious organization that Kirby Smart is running here in Athens, Georgia. And to be fair, he has reported some actual news that does merit attention. Problem is, he's interspersed that with a heavy dose of reckless conjecture, wild speculation, and just all-around factual inaccuracies, like, you know, hack journalism 101 type stuff, that's been going on for a couple of months now. That's not news. What is news really hit last Tuesday. So let's go back about a week here. Last Tuesday, while I was in beautiful Portland, Maine, Kirby Smart and the George Athletic Department fought back against Alan Judd and the AJC and how they have been characterizing the University of Georgia football program and what's just been going on in Athens with our football team. And guys, they came out swinging a nine-page demand for retraction. And yes, I read every damn word of it. And in that statement, that demand for retraction that was released, our lawyers put the AJC and really Alan Judd in particular on blast and basically debunked, I mean, every assertion that Judd has made more or less. And of course, we had a press conference to accompany that to answer questions with selected members of the media, but had a press conference there. Kirby Smart was there. Josh Brooks, athletic director. Derice Griffin was there. We had legal counsel there. And it was a fairly defiant press conference, guys. I mean, you had Kirby Smart there. You had athletic director Josh Brooks. You had Derice Griffin, who's a high-ranking official inside our athletic department. We had legal counsel there. A number of different stakeholders were there to answer questions and give their perspective. And they didn't pull any punches. They were respectful, they were professional, but they were also adamant in their support and defense of our program. So that news hit about a week ago, and that was news enough if we just stopped right there. That in itself was enough to talk about, but that wasn't the end of the story. Then yesterday... Old reports, and these were not like breaking news stories, like these reports that were out there that just had to be like dug up because it was 30 years ago. But there were some old reports that were dug up, and I believe initially, I want to give credit where credit's due here. I think it was a, a longtime UGA blogger, Senator Blutarski from the Get the Picture blog, who first wrote about those and brought them up, and I think it was ugasports.com. And they went and started asking questions and trying to get quotes from the AJC, Alan Judd, other people people involved and in what went down with the Courier Journal. But long story short, because I'm sure most of you are very well aware of those stories right now, but just in case you might have missed it, long story short, here, Alan Judd spent some time back in the late 80s at the Courier Journal in Louisville, where he was forced to resign over fabrications from a report, an investigative report that he that he did back in the late 80s. And there were some pretty wild quotes from the UGA sports piece that they did on this coming from one of the lawyers that was involved in kind of investigating what was going on with Judd in the Courier-Journal back in the 80s when he wrote that piece. And there were some people that were claiming that they were misquoted, they were taken out of context, and sometimes just flat out had things attributed to them by Judd that they strongly claimed they didn't say so so of course there's an investigation the Courier Journal's lawyers kind of looked into this and they sit down with Judd they went through the piece line by line word by word and tried to make sure they had all their bases covered and he essentially flat out lied to them he said he had tapes kind of had tapes and really had tapes had some tapes but had conveniently recorded over the parts that were in question at the end of the day they had end up making 10 corrections two clarifications and had to release a statement basically apologizing for the report so Judd was forced to resign. He eventually, a couple years later, goes on and gets a job from the AJC, which I, I'm at a loss for how that happened. I, I just don't understand how that's possible, but some way, somehow, he gets a job at the AJC, and he's been there for the past 30 years or so. Now, some might say, who cares? Why does this matter? Why are you gonna go digging through someone's old dirty laundry? We all made mistakes when we, when we were younger. Why can't you just let this guy live this one down? Well, I mean, it's kind of relevant, right? Like, it seems pretty relevant when you see a lot of the same things that he was accused of back 30 years ago happening all over again in the here and now. So I know I am a little late on getting this out to you guys due to an ill-time vacation, but look, I mean, anytime the team that you cover and the flagship newspaper in the state go to a war like this, it's kind of a big deal. So later or not, I want to share some thoughts to you guys on the whole deal. I've got a few things I want to say. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I do have a few things I want to put out there First, I want to go back to last Tuesday and the demand for retraction and the accompanying press conference. I got a couple of takeaways that I want to run through here real fast. First off, I want to say this. I think this needs to be said. Both things can be true. It can be true that there are legitimate issues within our program that need to be unearthed and need to be addressed. Like We have a serious street racing issue within our program, guys. And like I I know that it might not just be unique to our program. There are likely other programs who have a lot of the same issues. There's just not a spotlight shown on those programs right now because they didn't have a tragic accident that claimed the lives of two members of the organization. But I really don't care if it's unique to us or not. What I care about is the fact that there is very clearly an issue with speeding and reckless driving within our program and we need to do a better job of addressing that and like Kirby Smart said in his press conference last week we have tried to address it it's not as though that we've just swept this under the rug and not done anything which is not what I think the AJC would want you to believe it's a complicated very layered issue I do think it's a larger societal thing I think it's a cultural thing with youth culture today I say that because I work with young people around that age for a living, and I can just tell you from firsthand experience, it's very much a cultural thing. And that's tough for a football coach to counteract. It really is. It's easier said than done. And then you factor in a lot of these guys are 18, 19 years old. We have a number of guys every single year that we bring into our program guys that don't have their license when they come to Athens, that literally have no legal experience driving. And now in the modern era of college football, you factor in NIL, which gives a lot of these players access to the types of cars they would never have previously had access to that go really, really fast, far faster than they really have any need to. And then you mix that with a natural immaturity of 18, 19, 20-year-old guys, and you have a problem. And I believe, actually, I know that we have done quite a bit trying to address this issue and really trying to get guys to listen and buy into this and understand this. But the fact remains, it hasn't been enough. And I don't know the answer. Kirby Smart's been very open. like He does know the answer. He's going to keep trying, keep figuring out new ways to go about this. I don't know what the answer is, but it's something that we need to continue to work on. It is a legitimate issue. And we had an issue, at least a couple of isolated instances that we know of, of employees within the football program fraternizing with athletes, which is prohibited. That's not anything that should be happening outside of the building, outside of official football functions. I know that we have a policy that prohibits that. But again, as with the speeding issue, we need to find a way to be more effective in communicating that and making sure we put in place measures and mechanisms that further prohibit that from actually happening. Not just like relying on saying, hey, don't do this. Actually putting mechanisms in place to make sure it does not happen. So yeah, I do think it is true that there are some things within our program organizationally, structurally, that we need to address and that we need to improve on. That's the case really any organization. Again, that's not unique to Georgia, but it is something that we need to work on. That's all true. But at the same time, it can also be true that Alan Judd and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution have taken some of those legitimate issues as license to wildly speculate about broader cultural issues within our program and in the process, outright smear our players and our staff members with entirely unsubstantiated allegations that are published under the guise of investigative journalism. So I think that's important. I think both things can be true, that these are not two things that are mutually exclusive. It can be true that we do have some problems that need to be addressed, and also at the same time be true that the AJC and Alan Judd in particular have crossed the line and have turned legitimate journalism into tabloid fodder. So I just think that needs to be said first, Now, second off, one of the questions I got over the past couple days is, okay, why did it take so long? Why did we let the AJC, why did we let Alan Judd, not just write these articles, but then go make the media rounds, further spread these allegations, and really just drive the narrative home? And to answer that, I think you have to look at two things. Number one, when you're talking about a nine-page statement, a nine-page demand for attraction that was incredibly detailed and incredibly well-investigated itself, it takes time to get all that together, to get all the facts together, to cross all the T's, to dot all the I's. You want to make sure what you put out there is legitimate, and you want to make sure you cover all of your bases, which the AJC and Alan Judd clearly did not do. So I think that's the first thing. It just takes time to get everything right. But I would also say I really have a hard time believing that the timing of this press conference and this, this statement being released coming just one week, like exactly one week before SEC media days, I have a really hard time believing that was coincidental. I do believe we took our time getting things right to make sure that we were getting it exactly right, but I also am not naive. I really believe that we were trying to drop this at the exact right time. With the SEC media days coming up, We wanted to be able to take control of the narrative when Kirby Smart was going to have to go in front of all those members of the media and answer a bunch of questions about our program, our culture, speeding, sexual assault, all of those things. Because if you think about media day, guys, think about this. There's only so much Kirby can say at SEC media days. To defend the program because it's really largely dependent on the questions he's asked like I know every coach it's an opening statement but what is he going to turn the opening statements like a 20-30 minute monologue on how great our program is and our culture and refuting all these sexual assault allegations like that just doesn't make sense like that's just not going to happen so SEC Media Days is really not the forum for a full-throated defense the likes that we saw last week so you want to make that defense before SEC Media Days, shortly before SEC Media Days, so that can be fresh to everyone's mind, and you create a situation where instead of being on the defensive, when you head into SEC Media Days, you're on the offensive, and you flip this thing on its head. So to me, that's how you explain the timing. I really think it's two things. I think we want to make sure we got everything right. And then maybe even more than that, we wanted to drop it at the right time. And I do think one week before SEC Media Days was the perfect time to drop it. Another thing that I found interesting in the press conference, not the actual statement that was released, the nine page demand for retraction, but in the press conference where all those members of the media that were invited to come to the press conference, they were asking questions, something got kind of pointed. There was one quote from Kirby Smart that I found kind of interesting. So the question he was essentially asked was about recruiting and whether or not recruiting had any kind of impact on the university pushing back. I think here's the actual question. Following up on what you said about things you worry about all the time, I know recruiting is very high on that list. Was that at all part of this decision to be here today? And then Kirby said, quote, this had nothing to do with recruiting for us, none whatsoever. It had to do with allegations that we think are sensationalized and just inaccurate. Now, look, guys, you know, I love me some Kirby smart. And I know, like, what is a man supposed to say? Like, yeah, of course it's about recruiting. That's all I really care about right now. I mean, I know, what's he supposed to say there? But also, come on, come on. Are we really supposed to believe that? Of course recruiting is a big part of this you can say it's just about like ethical outrage and you can say that it's just about the perception of the program protecting our brand and protecting our players and I do think that's a part of it I think all those things factor into why we called the press conference and why we felt so strongly about issuing this ridiculously strong demand for retraction but let's also not act like recruiting has nothing to do with this because it absolutely does if you're talking about the brand, like protecting the Georgia brand, and you want to clear up the perception of the program, why? Why do you want to do that? Is it just because like you're proud of Georgia? And I, again, I, I'm sure that's part of it because Kirby is an alumnus. Like He is proud of the University of Georgia. He loves the University of Georgia like you and I do. So I'm not saying that's not part of it, but again, let's also not act like recruiting isn't a part of this as well because of course it is. Why does the brand matter? Why does the perception of our program, why does it matter what people in Tennessee or people in Florida or people in California think about the University of Georgia? Why does that matter? It matters because we are going to try to recruit players from those states. We do not want the perception of our program to be such that we protect sexual assaulters that we cover up sexual assault, that our program's out of control, that we won't protect your kids if they come here. If they come here, they're going to die. If they come here, they're going to get arrested. If they come here, they're going to get mixed in with the wrong crowd. If they come here, they're going to give into their worst impulses and they're going to be allowed to do so. If that becomes the perception of our program, that is going to hurt recruiting. And if recruiting gets damaged then our program gets damaged. Because if we don't recruit the same level, guys, we're not going to be winning at the same level. I've made it very clear over the years how I feel about players. You got to have the players if you want win, win at the highest level. Why have we all of a sudden now over the last five or six years become the top program in the country? Because we have recruited as well or better than anyone else in the country. And if we allow the brand to get damaged, if we allow the perception of our program to become tarnished, you better believe that we're going to feel that on the recruiting front. And If we feel on the recruiting front, you're going to feel it on the field of play eventually. So absolutely, of course, recruiting was a big part of this. We wanted to take control of the narrative and we wanted to fight back and push back. And really what we were doing more than anything, guys, is we were speaking to the parents of future recruits. That was really the target audience. You call a press conference like that, so members of the media will pick up all of this information and they're going to write articles about it, people on podcasts like this, people on talk radio shows, people on national television shows, they're going to discuss it, they're going to talk about it, and they're going to discuss just how adamantly George is pushing back and fighting against all these allegations. They're going to talk about how George went point by point down what the AJC wrote and basically obliterated it. And they're going to start to question the validity of what the AJC and Alan Judd have been reporting. And then when future prospects and their parents hear these things, they start to think, "Huh, okay. Well, maybe what we were being told by University of Tennessee, the University of Florida, the University of Alabama, and all these different schools recruiting against Georgia, saying that Georgia's program is in shambles, they got a really bad culture there. Maybe that's just a bunch of BS." So no, I mean it wasn't entirely all about recruiting, but let's also not lose sight of the fact that recruiting absolutely was a major consideration and why we went to the links that we did to push back against this article as publicly as we did. Another thing that this press conference and this statement did for me is it kind of reiterated just how little regard that Alan Judd and the AJC really had for the truth in this situation. This really wasn't ever about the truth. It was more than anything clearly now about an agenda. I think what, what happened here is that the AJC, Alan Judd, they saw blood in the water with the tragic deaths of Chandler LaCroix and Devin Willick, and they went for the jugular. That's what happened here. And here are a couple of reasons why I say that. So one of the allegations, or I should, I should say one of the insinuations, the many insinuations and judgments that Alan Judd kind of passed on in his most recent article what the one that was entitled Georgia rallies around players accused of sexual assault, or whatever it was titled, something like that. One of the things that he took issue with is that there were a number of players, I think it was eight players, that went to Adam Anderson's bond hearing back when he was originally arrested, and they identified themselves by name and by position on the Georgia football team. And he took that as a way to kind of like intimidate the alleged victim. But if he had done even the slightest bit of research into it, he would have realized that absolutely was not the case. Or here's the thing, here's what probably scares me more than anything he probably did do the research. He just chose not to adequately explain why they identified themselves as football players and by position because it didn't really fit his narrative. And we know that because UGA's general counsel, Mike Raber, during the press conference laid out exactly what happened in court that day. Those players who were under oath, by the way, in a court of law, were asked to identify themselves by name and by position. Again, under oath. What were they supposed to do? Not answer the question? And again, I can't sit here and tell you that Alan Judd knew that was what they were asked, and he's just withholding that information. But just like he wants to try to insinuate that it's Kirby Smart's job to know what's going on in this program. It's his job to do the research and to know those facts before he starts to go out and wildly speculate and make these crazy insinuations. And the other thing that still gets me fired up are all the insinuations that Bryant Gant is is basically Ray Donovan. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Ray Donovan, awesome show. But Ray Donovan was uh, basically a Hollywood fixer. So whenever some Hollywood starlet or some Hollywood star did something illegal, whether it was getting involved with drugs or accidentally killing somebody, whatever they were doing, they would call in Ray Donovan and he would clean up their mess. And he would usually do it by highly illegal means, intimidations, violence, whatever it took to clean up the mess. And that's essentially what Alan Judd, the AJC, wants you to believe that Brian Gant is, which is honestly disgusting. Because anyone who really knows what Bryant Gantt is about and what he does for our program, what he does for our players and the role that he serves for our players. Anyone who knows that knows that Bryant Gantt is an honest, good-hearted dude who's just trying to help his players, who's just trying to help a bunch of kids who don't really have their support system here with them in Athens. He's basically like a surrogate parent. And I'll give you an example. So I had a friend, you know, back in college years ago now who was going actually going down to the Georgia-Florida game in Jacksonville and got pulled over. forget what small town. It was one of those small towns between here and Jacksonville. And he's one of my best friends, so I, I knew him really well. I know that he wasn't a drug guy. He didn't do drugs and like that, but but he was in the car driving down to Jacksonville with a couple of guys that were, and that was his fault. That was his mistake, getting in the car with those guys, period. Should never got in the car with him. should not have been associated with them whatsoever, but he was, and they get pulled over, and... Some of them were high in the car. The cop comes over, he smells something, he sees something in their eyes, he has probable cause, check the car. And so there was a little small cooler and in the cooler, there were drugs in there. So like, what's the cop do? He asked them, hey guys, whose is this? Of course, no one's gonna own up to it. And since no one owned up to it, I forget the exact phrase, but basically it was like collective ownership. And so my friend who had nothing to do with the drugs other than the fact that he was in the car with the guys who did have something to do with the drugs, got caught up in that and he got arrested and he was in jail. And so I was a close friend of his. And so I got a hold of his parents. He got a hold of his parents. And I talked to him and we all together went up there somewhere around Milledgeville. We went up there and we bailed him out. We bailed him out. We picked him up. We took him to lunch. Let him, cause he was uh, obviously wasn't in great shape. Wasn't in a great mental state having to spend the night in jail and um, kind of just, you know, let him kind of get his thoughts together and, and took him home. But we were close enough to be able to do that. A lot of these guys are in Athens and their families are not in Athens. Their families are not even the state of Georgia. Their families are not even in the Southeast. So when they do dumb things like my friend did, like a lot of teenagers and a lot of young people are apt to do, they don't have their support systems there to help them out, there to support them the way that my friend did back you know, 15 or so years ago. And no one should have to go through those experiences alone. That is what Bryant Gantt does, guys. Like That's not all he does, but that is a big part of what he does. Like when he deals with the courts and the kids and getting in trouble and getting arrested and the cops, that's what he does. He doesn't go up to cops and try to get charges dropped, he doesn't name drop and, and try to intimidate cops. Like that's not what this guy's doing. So when it comes to Bryant Gantt stuff, Again, it comes down to one of two things for me. Either A, Alan Joe was just too lazy to do the research and really find out what exactly Bryant Gantt does. And honestly, it wouldn't take taken that much research. It wouldn't take that much time. Ask a couple questions. You could figure it out pretty quickly. Or B, and this is the more nefarious way to look at it, he did know the role that Bryant Gantt plays. He did understand that but it did not fit the narrative that he was trying to sell. So he just kind of misconstrued what actually goes on when Brian Gant shows up to support these players. So it's really one of two things. Either A, it's really lazy, shoddy journalism, or B, the guy's just being flat out dishonest. And I don't know which one it is, but I can't help but think it's one of those two things. Which brings me to my final point here, and then I'm gonna move on to some actual real football talk today, guys. But here's my last thought on this. Look, I don't know Alan Judd. I will never know Alan Judd. I will never talk to this guy. For all I know, he's a decent guy. He probably is. He's probably a fundamentally good, decent guy. And I do believe his intentions were probably good here. He probably felt like he was doing the right thing, that he was doing the noble thing, that he was fighting the good fight like he has done or like he thinks he's done his entire career. But what I think happened here is that Alan Judd fell into the classic trap of believing that what he perceived to be noble ends justified what were at best dubious and at worst highly unethical means. And he's not the first guy to let that happen, and he certainly won't be the last guy. But I think that's what we're looking at here. And more than anything, it's just so hard for me to understand how this was allowed to happen. Like institutionally, as the AJC, you have to realize that when you are going after the state's flagship school that just happens to have one of the most passionate and most engaged fan bases in the entire United States of America, that you're reporting on something as sensitive as the issues that they've been reporting on, it's going to inflame passions. That is inevitable. And there is going to be serious blowback. And when that is the case, when you know that, and you have to know that, You've got to make sure your house is in order. You've got to make sure that you're reporting that your journalists that you've assigned to the case are above reproach, and that simply did not happen here. I really believe as as much as Alan Judd is to blame here with how how he has approached this investigation, if you even want to call it that, the AJC's negligence here is just as much to blame. It really is. I think it's just as much to blame as our Judd's sensationalism and his fabrications with how he's reported on this story. And I don't know what's gonna happen here. I don't know ultimately what's gonna happen to Alan Judd. There were some rumors out there today that he had resigned or been fired. I have not seen confirmation there. I don't think that's true. I haven't seen anything reported by credible sources. So I don't know what's gonna go down there. I don't think that's out of the question but I, I can't see here and say that for sure. And I don't know what the AJC is going to do in response to our demand for attraction. Are they ever going to even respond? I don't know. But you have to think the fact that those stories from the late 1980s with the Courier Journal back in Louisville, the fact that they were brought to light once again, that's going to put a lot more pressure on the AJC to look a lot closer into the possibility of, I don't, if, I don't know if it's going to be a flat-out retraction, but maybe a correction or two here or there, or some clarifications, or a statement of some sort. I don't know what the end game is here. I don't know how it's going to play out but what I do know is that I'm very very excited to see us actually fight back because that's a new thing like you know I love Mark Richt and you know it it wasn't all him it's more of an institutional thing it wasn't just Mark I think he was a part of it but you know Greg McGarry Michael Adams when they were in charge of the program we kind of just fell on our sword and never really defended ourselves so this was very much a breath of fresh air for me and again as I said at the outset of this of this whole thing I do believe there are some legitimate issues that we need to address. I'm not sitting here telling you the, that everything the AJC published about our program was garbage. There, were some, there, were, there was some truth in, the, in all of that. But I'm also proud of the way that we pushed back and fought back and defended ourselves against what have very clearly been some wildly inappropriate reports. And before we move on and get to some actual, hardcore, legit football talk, let me remind you guys one more time about our great friends at Alumni Hall. Guys, I'm telling you, The summer is trudging along and it is not going to be long before you wake up and it's September 2nd. It's game day. So don't wait. Don't wait to the last second. You know you're going to need some new game day gear just like I am as we go for our unprecedented third national championship in a row and there's no better place to get that gear then at alumni hall they got every brand you could think of whatever your preferences they've got it they got every style they got stuff for your dog they got stuff for your car they got stuff for your house they've got stuff for your office whatever you are looking for they've got it. Trust me, guys. No one does it like Alumni Hall. So do yourself a favor. Stop in today inside the Epswich Shopping Center here in the Classic City or online at Alumni Hall. If you're not local, if that's easier for you, I get it. They have a great online process, online shopping center, great customer service. They'll get it out to you quickly and they'll have it all wrapped up and nice like it's Christmas morning. So don't wait. Get your 2023 game day gear today at Alumni Hall because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. All right, guys, let's move along here and let's talk some actual football. And the topic that I want to dive into for the rest of the show is Carson Beck. I feel like we have not talked remotely enough about this guy this offseason. And going back to this time last year, I feel like we spent the entire offseason talking about Stetson Bennett and how good Stetson was going to be, defending him. Can our offense be better? Can Stetson take the next step? And this offseason, like, we know Carson Beck's going to be the guy But there really hasn't been all that much conversation about the guy, and I include us in that, guys. Like We haven't talked enough about him, and I want to fix that today. I mean, yeah, we talked about him during spring practice, but from basically April through mid-July, it's kind of been crickets on Carson Beck. So I want to rectify that today, and the reason I'm bringing this up today is we are firmly in the midst of list season. I, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but it seems like every day on social media, every day... On a podcast, every day on TV, somebody somewhere is putting out a list, whether it's top Heisman contenders, biggest surprise teams, best running back, best quarterback, best wide receiver, so many lists. Every list you could possibly imagine, you can find it out there this time of year. And you know, I usually pay those kind of things pretty cursory attention, but this year I've been really intrigued by the SEC quarterback rankings list that have been out there. And I've seen several of these. I mean, anyone who covers the SEC, I feel like, over the past month or so has put their quarterback rankings out there. And I really find those interesting this year more than ever because I think it's a more wide-open debate about who's the best quarterback in the league than I can ever remember coming into a season. I'm really not sure the last time the league was this low on proving returning stars at quarterback so I think it makes these lists more interesting than they usually are and I also think it makes the season in general more interesting at least coming into the season than oftentimes it is because you don't have these proven stars at quarterback I mean you have some good players some guys that have some proven production behind their names but nobody that's really been like a bona fide star in the college game coming into this season which makes for a really interesting debate about who the best quarterbacks actually are. And in almost every one of these lists, you see Carson Beck's name usually somewhere in the middle of the pack. Certainly not at the top and certainly not at the bottom. Somewhere in the middle. It's like people don't exactly know what to do with him. They're kind of like in wait and see mode with him. So they kind of just throw him in the middle because like, yeah, I don't really know. Let's just throw him in the middle and say that we just, we'll figure it out later, right? So it's got me thinking, where does Carson Beck really fit into the SEC quarterback picking order coming into the 2023 season? I think it's a fascinating question. So I think the, the, the way to address this first off is to start by running through the quarterbacks in the league that I feel comfortable right now putting him ahead of, like going into the season before he's ever even started a game, which I know... Some people might take issue with it because you're like, how do you know Like he hasn't played any games? He hasn't started a game. He's played some, but he hasn't started a game, so how can you feel comfortable putting him ahead of anybody? Well, my answer to that would be, I've seen these guys play. Even though I haven't seen Carson play a ton, I've seen these other guys play, and they've already shown me that they aren't any good. So let's start with that list first, and I'm going to open, and this is like in no particular order. I just kind of made a list as they came to mind. Uh, first one here, Brady Cook from Missouri, and I don't even know if Brady Cook's going to start from Missouri this year. He was their star last year, so he's the incumbent, but they also bring in Jay Garcia as a transfer from Miami, have a guy named Sam Horn from Collins Hill here in the state of Georgia that's also on the roster, is a highly touted four-star guy a couple years back. He's in competition. Cook, I, I right now I would peg him as the odds-on favorite to win the job based on his starting experience in that system, but it's certainly not a done deal yet. I mean, that's going to have to be decided in fall camp. But right now, for the sake of argument here with this segment, let's just assume that Brady Cook is going to win that job, all right? Well, let's look at what Brady Cook did last year. So statistically, and stats on everything, they don't tell you the full story, but it's a good starting point, right? So statistically last year, Brady Cook completed 64% of his passes for... 2,700 yards, 7.1 yards per attempt, 14 touchdowns to seven interceptions. He had a little bit on the ground as well. He's a fairly mobile guy. But in no world is Brady Cook an elite quarterback. He doesn't have that kind of ceiling. He doesn't have the arm talent. He doesn't have the consistent accuracy. He can run a little bit, but he's not that dynamic with his legs to make up for his passing deficiencies. He has the potential to be a good, solid starting quarterback in the SEC, but he's never going to be anything more than that. And I don't know for a fact that Carson will be more than that, I believe that he will. We'll get to that later. But I don't know that yet. But I can also say there's still the possibility that Carson has the ability to be better than that. Like he has the skill set. He has talent around him to potentially operate at an elite level in our offense. Whereas I don't think that Brady Cook remotely has that potential in his game I just don't see it. so I think I would take Carson over Brady Cook right now AJ Swan at Vanderbilt who was a freshman last year was in and out of the starting lineup dealt some injuries some inconsistencies he's he's good-ish by Vanderbilt standards but come on like he doesn't have the the ceiling that Carson Beck has then you go to Florida and you look at Graham Mertz I absolutely would take Carson Beck over Graham Mertz right now Look, guys, we'll do a whole segment on Graham Mertz and the Florida offense in a couple of weeks when we get to the Florida Scout and the Enemy episode. And I've already talked about him a little bit this offseason. But the idea that Graham Mertz is going to come in and save the day for the University of Florida this year is entirely asinine to me. I don't understand the concept. Like, how can anyone with a functioning cerebral cortex actually think that's possible? This is a guy that was flat out. Bad at Wisconsin. You go back the last couple of years. So 2020 was his first year to starter That was COVID year. You can throw that out because it was a COVID year, right? Nine touchdowns, five picks that year, six point four yards per attempt. But I'm not going to hold that against a guy. First year as a starter, COVID year, throw it out, right? Well, to the last two years: 2021, 2022, 2021, fifty nine and a half percent completion percentage, under two thousand yards passing, six point nine yards per attempt, ten touchdowns, eleven picks. Last year, I mean, slightly better. I mean, maybe slightly better but only 57% completion percentage, so he dropped there, 2,100 yards passing, 7.5 yards per attempt, 19 touchdowns to 10 interceptions. If Carson Beck isn't better than that, we in trouble. I think Mertz is a lot like Cook in that he has the potential to be a good, solid, competent quarterback, like some, he might bring some more stability to Florida, but he doesn't have the ceiling. Why would we believe that he does if he's shown us for three years in a row that he's not that guy? He just magically going to become that guy this year? Like, come on, he's not that guy. So yes, definitely give me Carson Beck over Graham Merch right now. Spencer Rattler's a guy we spent some time a couple weeks ago talking about with our South Carolina scout the enemy episode. And we know that that this is a player that has the ability to operate at a really high level any given game, but he simply cannot bottle that up and do it every time out. He is the personification of inconsistency at the quarterback position. He's never been consistently elite. He's had moments of, but he's just never been able to to string it together for any sort of consistent stretch of games. And he's bad about 70% of the time and okay about 15% of the time. And then he plays at an elite level the other 15% of the time. So when you're talking about that kind of inconsistency, absolutely Give me Carson Beck over Spencer Rattler going into 2023. All right, next up, let's go to Auburn, and let's start, let's talk about Peyton Thorne. Now, this guy has not officially been named the starter yet. We did the Auburn scout in the enemy episode last week, so if you haven't, checked that out. Give it a listen after this episode because I give you guys a much more detailed analysis of what kind of player Peyton Thorne is and what he brings to the Auburn offense. But Peyton Thorne's a lot like Graham Mertz. I mean, I think maybe a little bit more effective than Graham Mertz in his in his past in Michigan State, but he's a guy that I don't think has an elite ceiling, but has shown that he can be a guy that can bring stability to a program, and he can function competently in an offense. But he also spent an entire 2022 season playing at a very subpar level. So yeah, I would take Carson Beck over Peyton Thorne right now going into the 2023 season. I would also take Carson Beck over whatever Bama's going to try out there at quarterback. And right now, we don't know who that's going to be. It's kind of like a three-headed battle right now between Jalen Milrow, who was the guy that filled in for Bryce Young last year when Young was out with injury for a game and a half. You've got Ty Simpson, who's a highly touted recruit a couple years back. And they bring in Tyler Buckner from Notre Dame this year. So I don't know how that's going to play out. If I had to put money on it right now, I would probably lean long-term Ty Simpson. But that's pure speculation. We have no way to know that right now. That's going to play itself out over the next couple of weeks once we get into, into fall camp here in a couple of weeks. But based off the limited information we have to operate off of with all three of those guys and the limited information that we have to operate off of when it comes to Carson Beck, absolutely give me Carson Beck over whoever wins that job right now. He was far more effective than the was last year when he got a chance to play. He looked far better this spring, which take it for what it's worth. It's just spring practice. It's just a spring game. You can't draw definitive conclusions off that. But when you add that as context to what you've already seen from these guys, yeah, I feel very comfortable saying that I I would take Carson back over whoever wins the Alabama job. Now this next one, if there were any Tennessee fans listening, which I'm pretty sure there's not, but if there were, if one of them caught one of this, they'd probably try to shoot me in the face or call me some ugly name on Twitter, which every Tennessee fan seems to think is a cool thing to do these days. But I would take Carson Beck over Joe Milton, and I know that is blasphemous to every Tennessee fan in existence out there in the world because they've all already booked their hotels to New York City so they can share that Heisman Trophy moment with him in December. And I just don't get it, man. I simply cannot wrap my head around it. We're talking about a guy that has started two separate college seasons at two different schools as the as team's starting quarterback, and both times... Has got beaten out and benched in the middle of the season. And this is the guy that's supposed to lead Tennessee to the promised land. This is the guy that's supposed to get them over the hump and win championships. This is the guy that's going to win the Heisman Trophy. Why? Like, just because he's got an arm, we can throw the ball 130 yards in the air? Cool. You know who else could do that? Jamarcus Russell. There are about 15 different things that I think are more important in a quarterback than arm strength. Sure, he's got that, but what the hell else does the guy have to compliment it, to go along with it? So, no, Carson doesn't have Joe Milton's arm. And sure, he's not quite as athletic as Joe Milton. I mean, that's fair. But everything else, he absolutely does better than Joe Milton. He's more accurate. He's more patient in the pocket. He goes through progressions better. He understands coverages better. Absolutely. All the things that quarterbacks really have to do that separates good quarterbacks from just simply talented quarterbacks, Carson Beck does better than Joe Milton. So yeah, give me Carson Beck over Joe Milton. And I would also take Carson over Connor Wegman right now. Now, Connor Wegman at Texas A&M, former five-star recruit, I'm intrigued by this guy. I think he has a chance to be a really good quarterback. He was up and down last year as a true freshman when he got opportunities, but late in the year he really did come on, really helped them win that game with LSU to end the season in college station alley. They ran the ball over LSU and he didn't have to do all that much, but he played well in that game. He's a guy that I think with a really good receiving core can potentially have a really good year this year. So I I think he's kind of like right there with Carson, but right now, based on the fact that Carson's just been in college longer and is, is more experienced, maybe not so much on the field. He hasn't started a game like Connor Wegman has, but just being in a college program, sitting in film rooms, taking reps, taking those mental reps. Right now, I would give Carson the edge, but I, I don't think it's crazy if you were a Texas A&M fan to suggest that maybe in the, the year, like they could be. On a very similar level, but right now I would I would take Carson there. I give him the slight edge over Connor Wegman right now. So who does that leave us with? Okay, who have I not mentioned? We got five names. Five names that I think right now, based off their previous production in college and what I've seen from them, you could argue coming into the season they should be ranked ahead of Carson Beck. I'm gonna start with a guy that seems to be the the media darling, at least the quarterback position, the SEC this off season, and that's Arkansas's KJ Jefferson. And look, guys, I feel like I am very uniquely positioned to talk about KJ Jefferson and analyze his game. Because those of you who were listening last year, who were who've been with us for a while, you know that I had a massive win total bet on Arkansas last year. I, I love doing win total bets. I've got a bunch of them placed this year already. And I, I did really well last year. I won, I think I was nine and two overall, if I remember correctly. But the biggest one I had was Arkansas. And I lost that one. Went nine and two, felt great about that, but I really would really have loved to to win the Arkansas one, just like for ego's sake, more than anything, like just say I got that one right because I was most confident in that one and I missed that one. But I had Arkansas over six and a half and I had a lot of money on that because I was very confident in that. So I watched every single game that Arkansas played last year. And I'm not talking like, you know, five minutes here, five minutes there. I'm talking start to finish every single play, like almost living and dying with those with those games play by play, because again, had a lot of money on those games. And that team absolutely drove me insane last year. And KJ Jefferson himself absolutely drove me insane at times last year. It's not that Jefferson wasn't good. Like Jefferson's a good quarterback. I'm not going to take issue with anyone that says that he's good. He is a good quarterback. He's got a good arm. He's a dynamic running threat. He's a different kind of dynamic running threat. Like He's not the fastest or the shiftiest guy, but he's just like a wrecking ball. He, He just will not go down. He will run you over. It's really hard to sack him because he's just so freaking big and strong. And he put up good numbers last year. So if you look at the numbers statistically, you can make a really strong argument for him being the top returning quarterback in the SEC. I think you make that argument and I wouldn't fight you too much on it, but I also have my doubts. And here's why I have my doubts on KJ Jefferson. The dude is not the smartest quarterback and I know that sounds terrible I know that sounds like you're just ripping this kid and you're calling him dumb and I'm not calling him dumb he's probably a smart guy but in terms of football sense sometimes on the field he does some absolutely catastrophically dumb things the one that I will never forget the one that stands out to me more than anything that he did last year was the game against Texas A&M so I think it was like, it was right before halftime. Arkansas is up 14-7. They're they're like on the A&M five-yard line. They're about to go up 21-7, going into half, and they're going to win that game. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling great about that game. It's early September. They're kind of on a roll. It's a game. Honestly, I didn't count on them winning that game, so if they won that game, I was like, dude, I'm absolutely winning this win total bet. That's gravy, man. But this guy, they run a quarterback draw, and from the four-yard line, the four-yard line, He decides he's going to leap. He's just going to jump. Like, he's just going to go for it, man. And we're not talking about, like, it's just an open lane. Like, there's no one there. I'm just going to, like, dive ahead and get in the end zone. The entire offensive line is staying up in front of him. The defensive line has stood them up. And for some inexplicable reason, the dude extends the ball and goes airborne from the four-yard line, thinking some way, somehow, he's going to get across the end zone and score a touchdown. As you would expect, of course, that did not happen. Didn't work out so well for KJ. Didn't work out so well for Arkansas. Didn't work out so well for your boy here. What happens is AM and sees the ball just kind of like there in his hands, like he's holding it up, and they knock the ball out. They pick it up. They start running it back. The guy that picks the ball up, I think it was Tyreek Chapel. he runs about 10, 15 yards. Then he gets wrapped up by one of the Arkansas players. But before he goes down, he hands the ball off to one of his teammates who then proceeds to run the rest of the way down the field and score a touchdown, and that ties the game at 14 going into half. If Arkansas would have just kicked the field goal there, they win the game. But no, they don't win the game because K.J. Jefferson inexplicably lost his mind. And he does that, guys. He does that pretty consistently, at least far too consistently for my liking. And I also have questions about him like in true third and long situations. Like when they're ahead of the chains and they're throwing the ball in early downs or running the ball, they setting up one-on-one opportunities for the receivers down the field. In those situations he's an effective passer. He absolutely is. But when they get in third long and the defense knows they have to throw the football, that's where he struggles. I think the Kendall Bryles offensive system really fit him. I think they really fit that offense around his skill set. So I'm really interested to see kind of how that looks this year with Dan Enos. Like, Are they going to completely change the offense? Are they going to keep elements of the Bryles offense, kind of merge that with Enos and what he's done traditionally? I think Jefferson is good, and I think that he deserves to be in the conversation as the best returning quarterback in the SEC. I'm just not so sure it's a clear-cut done deal, like some people want to argue that is, that he is the best returning quarterback in the league. But right now, based off what he's done in the past and his proven production, I do think it's fair to have him ahead of Carson Beck coming to the season. And I would say the same thing about LSU's Jaden Daniels. This is a guy that started a couple years at Arizona State, had a had a good year as, as a freshman. Second year wasn't as great comes to LSU. And uh, you know, started off a little slow in that offense because everything was new new coaching staff new offense new quarterback new teammates a lot of newness in that offense but as the season progressed like he really came on obviously an absolutely electric ball carrier I think he throws a gorgeous deep ball kind of like with Jefferson I have questions about him when it's third and long situations, obvious passing downs as he's the guy that's going to consistently beat you in those situations with his arm. I think that remains to be seen. I have some questions there, but based off what this guy has done to this point in his career, I think he absolutely should be ahead of Carson Beck coming into this season. And here's the guy that I don't think is getting near enough conversation this season. And I think it's because he wasn't great last year. He got banged up. He's been banged up for a large part of his career, but the one season two years ago, his junior year. He was absolutely fantastic. He was off the charts good when he stayed healthy for a full season. And that's Devin Leary, who's now transferred to Kentucky from NC State. His 2021 season at NC State, statistically, was better than any season that any of these other quarterbacks in the SEC this year have ever put up. We're going to dive more into him later this week on the Kentucky Sky Enemy episode, but this guy is legit. He's a really good player if, big if, But if he can stay healthy, and assuming he's going to stay healthy, because right now, let's give the guy the benefit of the doubt coming into the season. like We'll see how it plays out. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. But if he stays healthy, I would have him atop the list. Like Again, his 2021 season was a good bit better than any of these guys have ever put up. So like Daniels, like Jefferson, I would right now coming into the season, I would give Leary the edge over Beck based off experience, based off past production. And then you get to the guys from the Mississippi schools, and these are two dudes I don't know exactly what to do with. Let's start with Jackson Dart at Ole Miss. So big five-star recruit back in the day, went to USC, transfers out, goes to Ole Miss, and he was good in the Ole Miss offense last year. He wasn't a perfect fit for what Lane Kiffin's looking for. Like, he was mobile enough, but he wasn't a dynamic runner from the quarterback position. And increasingly, Lane Kiffin's offense, that's what they're looking for. That's a big reason why they went out and got Spencer Sanders from Oklahoma State. Like That's not a coincidence. That guy is a fit with the skills that he brings to the table and his ability to run the football for the Lane Kiffin offense. That's what they're looking for. Now, I don't know who's going to win that battle. Right now, it seems like Jackson Dart's going to hold him off, but that will play itself out over the course of fall camp in a couple of weeks. This is one I don't feel super strongly about. I think you can make a very strong argument to have Carson Beck over Jackson Dart because I thought Dart was only okay in that Ole Miss offense last year. They ran the ball really well, but they really did not throw the ball with anywhere near the proficiency that they did with Matt Crow. Now, Matt Crow was really, really good for Ole Miss. So, you know, that's it's tough to compare him to that. But their passing game took a pretty big step back last year with Jackson Dart. So that one, I think Beck's much closer coming into the season to Dart than he is to a guy like Jane Daniels or Devin Leary. I might give Dart the slight edge just based on experience, but I think, again, there's, there's an argument to be made coming to the season that maybe Carson Beck should be ahead of Jackson Dart. Now, this last one here is a guy that I have a, I have a tough time handicapping here, and that's Will Rogers from Mississippi State. Now, Rogers, under Mike Leach at Mississippi State, was on the verge of breaking basically every SEC passing record this year, and he might still well do that, but I have a lot of questions about how Will Rogers is going to fit with this new offense that Tony Barbet is bringing in, which reportedly is going to be much more of a pro-style attack, actually using motion, actually taking snaps from under center, which is something that Will Rogers has never, ever, one single time done in his career at Mississippi State. Now, he's seen a lot of defenses, he's read a lot of defenses, and he's got a lot of experience doing that. But the types of defenses that he played against when he played under Mike Leach, are very different the types of defenses he's going to see this year because teams played Mike Leach's Mississippi State teams very differently than how they played anyone else on their schedule. Like No one else saw the same kind of coverages that Mississippi State saw, and Mississippi State also didn't see a lot of the coverages that other teams saw. So I do think there's going to be a learning curve, not just learning the new offense, the language, the system, the plays itself, but also just learning how to read different kinds of defenses that maybe he didn't really see when he was playing under Mike Leach. And then if you look at Will Rogers physically, his skill set, I think he's very limited. I don't think he's a very physically gifted quarterback. He's highly accurate, which is a very important trait. I mean, that's one of the, if not the most important traits in a quarterback. So he has that going for him, but he's not mobile at all. He has a pop gun arm. Like everyone thought Stetson Bennett had a pop gun arm last year. Like Will Rogers actually has a pop gun arm. And that's fine in the air raid when he was digging and dunking his way to big yardage totals. why he threw the ball 50, 60 times a game. I mean, the guy averaged under seven yards per attempt last year, guys. He wasn't exactly pushing the ball vertically down the field. So how is he going to fare an offense that's going to ask him to do that on a more consistent basis? So I think there are a lot of legitimate questions there. On one hand, you would say, okay, well, Rodgers is on the verge of breaking all these SEC records. So like, of course, he should be ranked ahead of Carson Beck coming into this season in the SEC quarterback rings. Of course he should. But on the other hand, it's like, well, Carson's clearly more talented, clearly more physically gifted than this guy. And Carson's going to be doing things in this offense this year that he's been doing for three years in a row now while he's been apprenticing behind Stetson Bennett. Whereas Rodgers is going into a brand new offense, brand new scheme, and an offense in a scheme that really doesn't exactly fit his skill set. So that's a tough one for me to gauge. I think at the end of the day, I don't have an issue with anyone that wants to rank Will Rogers the head of Carson Beck coming into the season because he has been insanely productive for several years now as a starting quarterback in the SEC. But at the end of the year, if we were making a postseason SEC quarterback rankings, I truly do believe that Carson Beck would be ahead of Will Rogers. Which brings me to my final question. So we had five guys there. Five guys I think right now you can reasonably argue should be ranked ahead of Carson Beck on the top quarterbacks in the SEC list coming into this season. You got KJ Jefferson, Arkansas, Jane Downs at LSU, Devin Leary, Kentucky, Will Rogers at Mississippi State. Kind of iffy on that one, but I'll allow it. And also iffy on Jackson Dart at Ole Miss, but again, I'll allow it. But that's all about what's happened in the past. What I'm far more concerned about from here on out, heading into September 2nd, is what's going to happen in 2023? Like What's going to happen this year? So can Carson Beck find a way to put together a season that will catapult him over KJ Jefferson and over Jaden Daniels and over Devin Leary and Will Rogers and Jackson Dart to where most people would point to him as the best quarterback in the league at the end of the year? Well, that's a really tough question to answer because on one hand you could say, sure, Carson Beck has never once in his life started a single college football game. He's playing college football games, but he's never started one. He's never played any sort of significant moment. But on the other hand there are reasons quite a few reasons in fact to believe that yeah he actually could prove to be one of the better quarterbacks in the SEC this year first off like this is his fourth year in this system now I know that Todd Munkins moved on we have a new offense coordinator but look we, we all know that the guy calling the plays might be different this year Mike Bobo but the system's gonna be very similar Bobo was here last year for a full year under Todd Munkin. Learn that system. Learn the language. Kirby made it very clear during spring practice. The players themselves made it very clear. The language has been carried over. Most of the schemes are being carried over. There's a few little wrinkles that Mike's putting in on his own that kind of fit what he's done traditionally, but it's going to be a very similar looking offense. It will very much be like the offense that Carson Beck has been working in for the past three years. So he knows the system. And number two, he's got a ton of reps in that system. Tons of physical reps, tons of mental reps, countless hours of watching film with some of the best coaches in the country. Number three, yeah, he didn't start any games last year, but he did play. And when he got opportunities, he was highly impressive when he got those opportunities last year, over 70% completion percentage. I know it was garbage time, but over 70% completion percentage, four touchdowns, zero interceptions, looked sharp, looked crisp, looked in command every single time he got an opportunity last year. As I said earlier, he also looked spectacular in the spring game. Yes, you should take that with a grain of salt. You shouldn't draw definitive conclusions off of that, but that's not what we're doing here. That's just one piece of this puzzle. When you look at how he played in the spring game and you Add that to the fact that he's going into year four in the system. He's got all these physical reps, all these mental reps. He's looked really good. We got opportunities in actual games last year. So when you add how he looked in the spring game to all of those factors, I think it does carry more weight. It's not just an isolated performance where it's like, where did this come from? Like, no, this is what we expect from this guy. I mean, if you go look at the numbers, guys, go look at the numbers from last year. According to Pro Football Focus, Carson Beck only threw the ball 34 times last year. at 34 attempts but 72.7% of those were classified as accurate according to Pro Football Focus. 18.2% of them were inaccurate but catchable, like they're still in the ballpark to where the receiver can make a play on it. Only 9.1%, so less than 10% of his passes from last season, were inaccurate and uncatchable. That's crazy good, guys. So when you throw in his spring game performance on top of that, on top of that evidence, now it's limited. It's limited information. It's limited data. But it's the data we have to operate off of. So when you put all that together, you start to see a little bit of a trend here. And then, maybe most importantly, Carson Beck is going to be operating in an offense overflowing with talent around him. You have the reigning Mackey Award winner at tight end, who might be the greatest tight end in the history of college football. And that's not hyperbole, guys. He very well could be the greatest tight end ever to play the game of college football. And honestly, he's one more big year away from maybe going down as the single greatest Georgia Bulldog player of all time. Like, I, I think there's a legitimate argument to be made that he is. So that's a hell of a starting point. And then you throw in Ladd McConkey, who's been nothing but awesome for us, who's just been an absolute rock-solid beast for us for two consecutive years. You throw in a guy like Dominic Lovett in the slot, who was the best receiver from Missouri last year, who gives us a dynamic threat from that position that we didn't really have last year. You have Arian Smith, who he's a guy that he can stay healthy. Could really have a breakout season this year. You got Marcus Rosemary Jackson, who's been a really solid player for us for a couple years now. Ra Ra Thomas coming up from Mississippi State. He was their best receiver last year. Dylan Bell is a guy that I'm really high on coming into this year. I think enough people are talking about him. You got Oscar Dub. You got Lawson Lucky. You got a stable of running backs. Branson Robinson is probably going to miss a couple games to open the year, but he'll get back eventually, and I think he's going to be awesome for us once he gets back healthy. But you still got in the meantime, you got Roger Robinson who came in this year as a true freshman. He's going to be a good back for us. Kendall Milton is back this year if he can stay healthy. This could be his breakout year, the year that we've all been waiting for from him. Dejan Edwards is coming back, and all this guy does so when he gets opportunity. Opportunities is make plays. Andrew Paul missed all of last year with ACL tear, but this is a guy that was making waves of fall camp before he got injured, and he could be a major factor for us in the backfield. And then on top of all of that, you have what is probably the best offensive line in the entire country. So when you add all of those factors together, I think you can make a really legitimate argument that at the end of the year, Carson Beck could end up being the best quarterback in the SEC. You just don't know. That's the thing. Like You still just don't know. Like Right now, we are in projection mode. Like, we want to believe, and I think it's reasonable to believe based off all those factors I just went through, but it's still very much a projection that's based on limited, tangible evidence. Like There's a little bit of tangible evidence. We've seen him in games a couple of times. We've seen him in spring practice, but admittedly, we are pretty limited in what we've actually seen from Carson Beck, but here's what I'm extremely confident in saying. I'm extremely confident in saying that Carson Beck has a very high floor. I simply do not see a scenario where he is a disaster this year. I simply don't see it. Again, I think we have too much talent around him for him to be a disaster. I think he's shown us enough at this point to suggest that at the very least, he's going to be solid for us. I think the floor is very, very high. The question, though, that still remains to be answered is how high is the ceiling? And I I think it's unlikely that he's going to be like Bryce Young good. I mean, I don't expect that. I don't think he's going to be Caleb Williams good or even like Drake May good. I'm not expecting that. But he doesn't have to be that level good to be the best quarterback in the SEC this year. Because again, there's not a quarterback like that in the league that's at least coming back based on their returning production. There's no Bryce Young. There's no Caleb Williams caliber quarterback. There's no Drake May caliber quarterback. That guy doesn't exist in the league. So he doesn't have to be those guys To end up being the best quarterback in the league at the end of the year. So here's where I am with Carson Beck right now. I don't think you can confidently say that Carson will absolutely be the best quarterback in the SEC this year, but at the same time, I also don't think you can confidently say that he won't be. And I do think there are some guys for different teams out there in the league this year you can look at and say, yep, that dude has no chance to be the best quarterback in the league. Like if you're looking at A.J. Swan from Vandy, if you're looking at Graham Mertz or Brady Cook or Peyton Thorne or Jackson Dart or Spencer Rattler, guys like that, those guys have no chance to be the best quarterback in the league. Like they're just not going to be. And Carson Beck might not be either. But unlike those guys, those names I just rattled off, he at least has a chance to be. There's enough evidence that we've seen at this point to suggest that he has the ability to be that guy by the time the season ends. And for my money, guys, for what it's worth, I think Carson's going to have one hell of a season. But all right, guys, that's all I got for today. We'll be back later on this week. I know we had kind of a condensed week this week. I wanted to get this show out on Monday, but I didn't get back in town until Monday night, which is when I'm recording this right now. So this episode is going to come out on Tuesday. We'll have another episode on Wednesday. We're going to recap what went down at SEC Media Days when Kirby Smart was up there on Tuesday. And then at the end of the week... And at the end of the week, Curse will be back with me, and we're actually going to try our hand at our own list. We're going to be ranking the 10 best players on the Georgia football team coming into the 2023 season, so we'll have some fun with that. So a lot of great stuff for you guys the rest of the week. Thank you for being here. Always appreciate you guys. I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs.